The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the cross-asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team. This week on the show, it was certainly one for the record books. As the coronavirus continued to spread around the globe, Treasury yields plunged to all-time lows, the 10-year below 1.3% for the first time ever. And by one measure, stock volatility surpassed that of the fourth quarter out in 2018, with the S&P 500 falling into a 10% correction. And Sarah, I suppose, should we conclude the episode with the craziest thing I saw in markets. Should we continue that tradition? I think we should continue that tradition. Yeah. Yeah. We have uh, a couple columns this week. We have someone who waited on Twitter. So we have a lot lot to go around. I might abstain this week. You're going to abstain. I'm going to abstain. That's a shock. It is. But, you know, I kind of feel like Michael Jordan uh, when he retired from basketball. He just got bored. He was so good at You're it. You're so just, good at winning. You win every week. You he might as well take a week off. Give yeah. uh, give the rest of us a chance. Yeah, he went and played baseball. I might go switch to, to rational, sane market yeah, stories. Yeah. I, I don't know. Okay, Sometimes. yeah, because that's so exciting. Yeah. That and also I, I totally blanked. I could not find it. I even contacted Vildana, our, our crazy... In a week like this, I'm shocked that you blanked and you couldn't find yeah. something. That really... Yeah. Uh, says a lot about how good you're actually right, are at finding right. crazy well, market everything stories. Everything is crazy this week. So. It, yeah. Luckily, today we have some great guests here with us to help make sense of all of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, joining us for the first time, we're very excited to have her. She is the chief fixed income strategist at Charles Schwab. Kathy Jones, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And Coming back to the show, a real uh, favorite of the What Goes Up fans out there. Uh, this guy ha- actually has his own fan club. Yeah, it's not a, a club. It's uh, w- one person it's I one, went to high school with. It's one guy, yeah. <laughs> but he's very vocal. So he's we, very yeah, vocal. Yeah. I guess yeah. he's a club. So uh, uh, Eli Paname, yes. if in fact that is your real name, and I'm that pretty sure not it's his, not your real not name. Uh, this one's for you, bud. This is Chris Nagy, executive editor of Bloomberg News. He is going to tell us to the decimal point when this stock market correction will end. Isn't that's that right, That's correct. Chris? We're revealing that later. We, we're going to reveal that later, so stick around for that. But, uh, Kathy, I wanted to start with you. I know this is the type of week where I my heart goes out to strategists who uh, the ink is barely dry on your year-ahead forecast, and boy, does everything change quick, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. I, 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 I hate to bring it up, but I want to give you credit for one thing that was in your original forecast that I, th- I find very interesting, and that was you were underweight uh, high-yield debt, junk bonds, basically. And uh, because the euphoria in that particular asset class, I think, was eye-popping uh, leading into this coronavirus episodes. I mean, razor-thin spreads. Um, yes, there were some green shoots in the economy, but it just seemed... It seemed, uh, you know, too euphoric to be to be too real. Too good to be true. Too good to be true. So I'm just wondering, you know, if we could start with that sort of notion, that high yield. I I feel like it's 
time to really worry about high yield. Looking at the spreads uh, on the Bloomberg Barclays index, I think they were like 340 basis points a week ago, up to 425. And that sort of rapid widening of spreads is, is pretty alarming. How far does it go? I mean, is this um, economic damage from this virus enough to start worrying about sort of defaults and, and, and massive downgrades and that sort of thing? Well, we were worried before this happened, uh, partly because the economy was already showing signs of slowing down a bit and the spreads were so tight that there was just no margin for error. And that was the reason for our underweight. You know, why why buy those bonds and get so little yield and take so much risk? Um, and our concerns really centered around a couple of industries, energy being one, which has been in sort of a secular decline now. And uh, also the corporate profits were not rising. Uh, we look at the actual corporate profits, not the ones that the <laughs> management <laughs> likes to talk about. So we actually look at the, the real ones. Uh, you, like that, the, you like the items left in, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, those have been sort of deteriorating for quite some time and corporate leverage going up at the same time. And then uh, when you look at the asset class, uh, you look at the loan part of the asset class, because most of these issuers have not only high-yield bonds, they have loans as well. And you look at the loans, and about 75% of the loans now are covenant light, meaning there's not much protection for investors. So you know, even before this happened, the risk of rising defaults or problems with refinancing if should we hit you know a speed bump was there obviously we didn't know this would be the speed bump or where it would come from but when you're priced for beyond perfection it just made sense to us to stand back and say, we don't want a part of this until it's more attractive. So we've seen high yield spreads widening now at the widest level since August, I believe. Also, there have been many reports out this week about bond offerings drying up in yeah. the United States, in Europe. Is that something we could potentially expect to continue or to worsen, particularly if we do see this virus spread around the globe? And it's really hard to estimate exactly what the fallout's going to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not unusual for high-yield spreads to to jump a couple hundred basis points pretty quickly when things go south. Um, so currently at 425 over, they're just back to the long-term average. It's right. not even like they're <laughs> right, undervalued right. <laughs> right now. So we could go to 500 or 550 over. I mean, this is maybe now we may de decide to move from underweight to at least neutral. We might start looking for attractive opportunities where they exist. But with all the uncertainty about the virus and what impact it will have, um, it's probably too early to jump in there with both feet. Right. And the on the flip side of that spread, obviously, the Treasury yields are just, as, as Sarah mentioned, uh, what are we below? Are we below, below 1 130 on, yeah. on the 10-year? I mean, real yields are negative now. Um, how low can they go? I mean, we've heard people sort of uh, prophesize about, oh, don't be surprised if we see negative yields in the U.S. I mean, could we really uh, contemplate such a, th a scenario? It could happen. Um, in our view, you know, you'd, you'd probably have to have a situation where we were going into a global recession and the Fed was not keeping up by lowering short term. They could go to zero and maybe stay there. And in the worst case scenario, you could see two, five, 10 year yields go negative. That's not a forecast, but it's not beyond comprehension. Right, right. But you'd still see the sort of the bill yields, that front end of the curve positive, you think? 
I think the Fed would really, really like to not go to negative rates um, yeah. because of the impact on the banking system and just mechanically, you know, money market funds and that hasn't been entirely successful where it has been done. Now, you might get some argument from European Central Bank on that, but I think by and large, there's some question marks as to whether it's really an effective strategy. Never say never. I think they might if if we were really in a deflationary environment. But um, my bias is to say that that's really kind of a small probability event. Right, right. Stepping back and taking a little bit of a wider view, uh, when we're trying to figure out what the coronavirus might actually mean for the global economy, we constantly hear that it's going to cause supply shocks. Also, it does now appear that it will cause demand shocks as well uh, if people can't get out of their houses or go to work. I mean, in that scenario, sure, many people looking at the bond market saying the bond market is screaming for the Fed to ease once again. I mean, what help would that actually even do in this scenario? Yeah, and I think it's pretty widely accepted that adding liquidity in this environment probably isn't going to cure the virus, cure the disease, produce a vaccine, or make people go to the movies or the grocery store. Uh, Having said that, though, um, I think one thing it does is it's a signaling device, right? It says, okay, we're on it. It's sort of the whatever it takes that we got out of Draghi in Europe, that we're uh, going to provide support and liquidity. And if financial conditions continue to tighten, which, you know, the credit spread story is part of that, they can loosen financial conditions a bit by lowering rates. And that can help on the margin. But I think part of the hesitancy we're hearing from Fed officials is they know that there's only a limited impact they can have, and they don't want to use all their tools if this thing is going to pass in six weeks or something. I wonder if uh, quantitative easing would sort of come back on the table before even uh, a 0% Fed rate, you know, especially aimed at the corporate market, you know, if we do see that deterioration? I suppose that's a possibility as well. I think they probably are discussing right now yeah. what, uh, what possible options, yeah. tools they, they could use. Um, it's pretty obvious from public statements that as of at least yesterday, they did not have a quorum for even a rate cut because there's a number of officials coming out and saying, oh, it's too early to tell. Uh, so I think before they start signaling any change in policy, they need to get everybody on board as to what they want to do and what their reasoning is going to be. Right, right. Chris, come on in here because full disclosure, we record as of Thursday. And as of right now, the S&P is on track for its worst week since 2008. And yeah. granted that week in 2008 was much worse, mm-hmm. but still that that says something about the velocity of what we've seen. Yeah. Why is it, do you think, that we are seeing such this dramatic and fast downturn? A couple of things come to mind. One is it's exactly what we're discussing right now, that it's not clear that the Fed, as it has every other time something like this has happened for the last X amount of years, has some has some blueprint for, for reversing anything. It really is not in the business of curing uh, new viruses, to put it mildly. And... The other thing I think you have to look at in the stock market is the slope downward somewhat reflects the slope upward. We had an enormous orgy of bullishness over the previous four or five months. You look at tech stocks, basically parabolic rises. You had a lot of individual investors jumping into the market. This comes right after all of the brokerages cut their cut their commission rates to zero. A lot of hedge funds get in it and part of any reversal like this is going to be what it's reversing. And it's reversing basically a steep rally and it's coming uh, one right after another. And it looks, it causes it to look very bad. 
Jeez, orgy of foolishness. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Where'd that come from? I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk with Eli after this. We, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, wait for that to somehow appear in uh, one of the orgy stories of that go out. And... Well, what's gonna be yours now? That would no. be a good headline. But you know, uh, say the Fed. I mean, and you look at the futures market, Fed fund futures. They're pricing yeah. what two or three rate cuts by the end of the year yeah. uh, already. Um, it doesn't seem to matter to the stock market. I mean, right. would that signal from the Fed, if if uh, whoever's up next on the Fed speaking circuits, you know? Pretty much signal that a, a rate's coming. Well, I mean, who, who knows if that would work or not? One one thing I would say: we mentioned QE, and in the minds of a lot of stock investors, the not necessarily most expansive minds in the world, <laughs> QE has been going on for the last five months. The, the they're repo, con, they're yeah. con, they're convinced that the that the, I I uh, our guest Kathy's is shaking, shaking her head. Kathy is shaking yes. her head. I, no, which, no, which, no, which I get, no. but at a psychological level, again, we're not talking about necessarily the brightest bulbs in the tree. They really the idea that the Fed's been doing something to stimulate the economy through its repo actions is pretty much lodged in. So you have a bunch of people who are like, wait, what happened to all of, of all of that stimulus we thought we were getting? So in a way, it kind of it's kind of a little bit of a laboratory for whether or not stimulus would work. I, I think in my nursing home, there, there's <laughs> debate over whether the repo actions were QE will, will be raging on. <laughs> <laughs> Forever and, and ever. And I got to say, I'm, a, I'm kind of one of those, those dumb stock guys where I, I get it. It's not the same as QE. But Kathy... They're going to have to keep up with this, with these repo actions longer than they expected, I think now, right? I mean, and, you know, basically what they're doing in the repo market, you know, intentional or not, it's bringing those money market rates, you know, lower than inflation, turning them negative on a, on a real basis. I Actually, mean, what they're doing is keeping the Fed funds rate in the corridor that they established. Right. So um, the the rise in the balance sheet at the short end is really not stimulus to the economy. It's not QE. It's simply to um, manage the Fed funds rate in the area that they want to keep it in. So the the misinterpretation of that was pretty widespread. The one thing I will say is when they did QE, a couple of things happened. Long-term rates went up because it, it built up inflation expectations. That didn't happen this time. And secondly, they told us they were doing QE. <laughs> yeah, right. They were it's a signaling thing. And they were trying to get people to be, you know, bullish and and risk taking. And this time they said, nah, we're just trying to keep the Fed funds rate in a range and it's all plumbing. Right. And the market ran with the story that they liked. But, I will say I a few emails landed in my inbox this week pointing to the fact that, yeah, this is a horrible week in the stock market. But if you look at the level of the Fed's balance sheet, it hasn't been increasing as quickly as possible. And now Kathy's rolling her eyes. <laughs> but, you know, I'm looking at it from that sort of lizard brain stock market guy, right? <laughs> I mean, you had you had cash interest rates, money market mutual funds at about two and a quarter above the rate of inflation. You bring them back down to, I don't know what they're at now, one and a half or so. I mean, it may be not be stimulative to the economy. I, I feel like it is stimulative to the stock market to some degree. You see that those balances, uh, you know, ICI keeps a, a running tally of money market balances. It had been going up and up and it kind of plateaued. Um, so can they still sort of unwind the, these repo uh, operations like they had planned in the spring? Oh, I, you know, I think so. Um, I think they want to keep it going through tax time. Yeah. Uh, but we heard Jamie Dimon come out and say that the his bank will now use the discount window, which is one of the reasons that things were 
um, not working properly is because they were reluctant to use the discount window because of the stigma attached to it after the financial crisis. So if, if he's reversing that policy, there'll be less need for them to inject liquidity. I'm thinking back to 2018 and imagining uh, J.P. Morgan saying, we're going to tap the discount window to alleviate the stigma Stigma and Bear Stearns going, yeah, us too. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're going to do it to alleviate the stigma. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking back to when Jamie Dimon said we could see 4% on the 10-year. Yeah, <laughs> now not, we're talking about exactly zero, right? True. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also want to get your take, because if we look at the curve, we're seeing an interesting divergence, whereas if you look at the spread between three-month 10-year yields, now pretty deeply inverted once again. And in a way, we've seen a re-steepening in twos, tens. What What is the message here, if you can actually take away any coherent message at this point from the curve? Yeah, I think there is a question of what's what's actually being signaled and what's sort of a consequence of all the various things going on. Um, the the three-month, 10-year, I think, is telling you that, that the market thinks the Fed is too tight and the market expects the Fed to cut rates. And we've had a, an interpretation at the long end of the curve that this is a deeply deflationary event. Now, sometimes supply shock are traditionally supposed to be inflationary, but I think um, the assumption is this is both supply and demand, and you're seeing crude oil prices crash and other commodity prices go down, and the assumption is that demand is going to shrink as well. So it's been very deflationary, and that's pulled down long-term rates. The, the belly of the curve, which had been actually inverted uh, is just kind of lagging behind now. So I'm not, I'm not using the 210 as a great signal from here. Yeah, I wonder uh, what weight in CPI cruise ship pricing has, and uh, I'll have to look that up. <laughs> I, I, that's going to be... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> doozy. But uh, one thing, uh, a story I helped edit on the, the Bonds team before the this real risk-off uh, episode started was uh, basically about how thin, like we were talking about, how thin spreads were, you know, not just in corporates, in, in munis, uh, everywhere you look, you have... Uh, Greek ten-year yields below one percent, Italian ten-year yields below one percent, and you know the spread to German bonds pretty much the lowest they had been in in the past decade or so. And uh, Bank of America, their weekly fund manager uh, survey came out, and I forgot. I think it was like the second uh, biggest risk that people saw was quote unquote the the bond bubble popping. Um, Obviously, we've got other risks to worry about now. But I mean, do you believe there was a bond bubble? And if so, I mean, how do you explain? And even if you don't think it's a bubble, how do how does one think about why there was so much money coming into the bond market when the stock market was also doing well? I mean, it just is it as simple as there just being this savings glut around the world, this sort of record long economic expansion and just too much investor capital looking for places to go? I, I think that that's the main thing that's going on. I mean, I've been asked about the bond bubble literally since 1986. <laughs> and, and and someday, all those people predicting it will be yeah, right. I called it. Yeah, exactly. If they're still alive. I called it 1986. Yes, exactly. But you have the secular trends, right? Uh, the aging demographics around the world and um, the savings glut. 
and a decline in inflation and inflation expectations. So that's that's a bit. You have an overhang of debt, which actually depresses economic activity to some extent. And then you have this tremendous demand for yield. I mean, just incredible um, demand for yield from pension funds, insurance companies, you know, you name it, uh, individual investors. And it's almost like you get so low that people have to buy more just to get the income that they need. And so um, I think that those are the main drivers and the expectation that the central banks will not be able to raise rates anytime soon. With that, I do want to bring it back to the stock market because in a way there is a bright side to the sell-off and that being maybe the normalization of valuations. Oh, yeah. So now the S&P trading around its average over the last five years. But isn't there a sense that we're going to have to see the E and earnings estimates come in too? I mean, we've already heard from a good amount of companies, right. but shouldn't that list only grow? Yeah, you're talking about the valuation versus forward estimates, like 2020 estimates. Um, they do look much, uh, we're talking Thursday, on Thursday, which was the, the scene of one of the more harrowing sell-offs of uh, the last 10 years this morning. And they got down to sub-17, which you're right, is about average. Certainly, you lose the the easy criticism that the market's overvalued when that's true. But exactly, those earnings estimates have to come true. And the whole point of this sell-off is that they probably won't as a result of the virus. And to the degree that they won't, that's what everyone's in the stock market who's thinking about such things is trying to figure out, like, what is snarling supply chains and dimming consumer markets? What does that do to that estimate? If, if the estimate falls at all, then things start to look expensive again. Yeah, it's to me, and I hate to make the 2008 comparison, even though I guess we are mm. in the worst week since yeah. 2008. But right. to me, the the kind of eerie similarity is not p- just people cutting forecasts, yeah. uh, not companies cutting forecasts, but literally just with, withdrawing them and saying- Not yeah. giving another number. Right. We, right. We, we can't replace this. Um, it's almost like, I forget which bank it was that came out in 2007 and said, we just simply can't price these mortgage bonds. Right. Um, so is that sort of information vacuum uh, kind of the, the biggest worry right now? I think it is. I mean, uh, earnings estimate, estimating earnings even the best of times is a pretty futile endeavor. Uh, the B- Bloomberg columnist a few years ago pointed out that by far the best indicator of what earnings will be next year, better than analyst views, strategist views, what companies say, is what they are this year. It comes much closer to, est- to being an accurate estimate of what they are in subsequent years. I think the 2008 comparison, while a little bit extreme, is the right one. Because what happened in 2007 is it, it never really looked like valuations got out of control because no one really looks at valuations the year after the earnings, the earnings right. uh, stocks fell a ton in 2008, and they never there was never looked like any kind of valuation bubble. But if you look at 2007 prices versus 2008 earnings, which ends up being the key comparison, stocks were priced like 80 times. Right. That's why, more or less, you had sell off in the stock market. I'm not I- saying that's happening. <laughs> <though>. <laughs> The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I, I do wonder, though, 
sure, we were due for a correction. The S&P is now down more than 10 percent. But at one point, does this actually start to affect confidence? I just get the sense that if we do start to see this virus spreading around the country and people are being a little bit freaked out on that side, I mean, confidence seems that it's more easily affected if you start to see it coming through to the stock market, too, because people are already being affected themselves on a physical level. Yeah, and I think that's one one way that this potentially turns into a recession, right? But people stay home, or they're fearful of traveling, um, or going about even their daily business, and they cut back. Then you start to get, well, if you're not doing much business, there are layoffs, because there's no, no demand. The demand starts to shrink. You lay people off, then their income shrinks. And that's how it rolls right. into a recession. Right. And that's the concern that um, I think the Fed would have and, and the administration would have right now is you this this economy has been driven by consumer spending. That's really what's held up. Investment uh, has been kind of sluggish, and uh, foreign demand has been kind of sluggish. So we really need consumers to keep spending to chug along at two percent or so. And if this affects that, uh, then the risk of recession starts to really rise. Right. You know, I, I know whenever the monthly jobs numbers come out, I always look to say, all right, well, what was really leading the growth? A lot of sort of restaurant jobs, retail, health, uh, health services. Health services. That's another. One. I mean, I guess they're not going to get. I laid they're off. not going to get laid off. But yeah. I feel They'll like those, yeah. <laughs> they may not want to do the job anymore. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Good point. But those retail restaurant jobs seem very vulnerable. They're the type of jobs that get cut very quick when the tables are empty, when the malls are empty. Um, I mean, could we see these jobless claims? They surprised a little bit on the upside this week, I think, 219,000. Yeah, we have President's Day in there, so it gets a little, the seasonality might be a problem with actually assessing it. But if we, yeah, I mean, we're watching jobless claims really carefully because that'll be a leading indicator. Right, is that, I I was going to ask, is that the key stat to watch going forward? Yeah, and we've already seen in the JOLTS report new job openings rolling over, which means it's maybe not as robust for the new job market as it has been. And then if you start to see some layoffs come through, then that's going to be concerning. There's another secondary feedback loop that someone's got to mention, which is that certain candidates' political uh, prospects, I think we can safely say, are potentially affected by the stock market. The one that the market seems to like, the candidate, the the, the incumbent, uh, could could suffer if the market, if we get a bear market, uh, you have to face that fact, and that could Right. in and of itself make things worse. And the guy who's been talking about uh, universal health care right. his whole career is good. Not that I, I'm uh, expressing any kind of political opinion. My fan club will point out that I grew up in eastern Massachusetts, so <laughs> That's real assume loud. what you will. Yeah, but, a, lot of, uh, a lot of conservatives up there. The stock market, it's pretty safe to say, likes the sitting guy. And uh, to the extent his prospects are besmirched by what's going on. And with that, I will, of course, say that Michael Bloomberg, who was running for president, is the founder of Bloomberg LP, which is the owner of Bloomberg News. And with that, I'll say that's all the politics we're going to have. Fair enough. Week, fair right? enough. I think and, it's uh, time for the crazy thing, even is, if you're going to abstain, Mike. It's time for the craziest <laughs> thing. I am. I'm, I am. You know, it's like Jordan uh, retiring. Right, Chris? You get it. Chris gets it. Very much so. Yeah. yeah I don't know if Sarah favor. remembers. Doing Michael a Jordan, favor. But, uh, but uh, or, oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Am I age shaming you? Yeah, you are. I'll stop that. I'll stop that.
let's go to the hotline. Sarah, tell people about the hotline. So remember, you can always give us a call at our very own Bloomberg Podcast hotline. That number is 646-324-3490. And as you'll hear in a second, if you leave us a message about the craziest things that you guys have heard or if you have any questions for us, feel free to leave a message and we may even play it on the show, just like this one. Now, Sarah, I know some people listen to podcasts at like one and a half speed or two speed. Can you give the number again really slow? Yes. For, so, so they can catch six, it? four, six, three, two, four, three, four, nine, zero. Slower. Is that so better? I can't, I can't do this again. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I would listen to podcasts slowed down so everyone sounds drunk. I think that would be, that would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> make them last. That would make this one make more yeah. sense. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go to the voicemails. I know we've got uh, two of our uh, well-established listeners. They've called us before. We're very happy to hear them again. Uh, let's, let's hear what they have to say. Okay. This is for What Goes Up. This is Twiggy Sunday, your favorite Twitter character. So here we go. So, the Dow's going down a 1,000, and the VIX is going nuts. So, I turn into Bloomberg surveillance, and who else do I hear? Our own Mike Regan, our undisputed, craziest thing, winner of all time, undefeated. And what's he talking about? None other than Bernie Sanders and some guy on a Zamboni who saved the day in hockey. Hey, that's crazy. I love it. Cheers to Mike. Love you guys. Twiggy out. I've got to say, we always appreciate when you do call in and you let us know what the craziest things are that you've seen in markets. But come on. <laughs> Und, I think the, the quote was undisputed, undefeated champion. Yeah, that? no. Yeah. Right. Michael yeah. Jordan. The Michael Jordan. The, the Michael Jordan of the crazy things. Twiggy, can you call and, and say that next time? <laughs> but uh, the story he's talking about, that was the craziest thing that's ever happened in hockey. Did Nuts. you see that? Yeah, that absolutely. guy. Uh, everyone knows the story. I won't even bother. But uh, Miracle on ice. All I'd say <laughs> is I'd like to be, I, I feel like Zamboni drivers everywhere are going to be getting calls from sports agents trying to, trying to negotiate that one day. I'm feeling contract. even better than they usually do. Yeah. Those guys. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's hear the other voicemail. Hello, my name is Morgan Hill. I'm an investment associate in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, obviously, the volatility as of recent has been a little crazy, but uh, when we woke up this morning, we saw that Walt Disney's uh, CEO, Robert Iger stepped down uh, and shares dropped 2%. But uh, what was ironic about that is there was no announcement of him actually leaving the company until uh, the end of 2021, and he's going to be on the creative aspect side of the business. So with that um, and the new CEO uh, stepping in from the head of the parks, I think was, was a little crazy. So hope you guys have a great week. It was very sudden news and big news, but I have to say that my first immediate thought was, can you only be CEO of Disney if your name is Bob? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my thought was, you know, that Zamboni driver who got to play goalie, yeah. that'd make a great Disney movie. So oh, yeah. free, tip, free tip for Bob Iger if you want to turn that stock around. There's there's your next movie. <laughs> there you go, Bob. Yeah, there you go. Chris Nagy, do you have a crazy thing? My crazy things are just the an, an really preposterous number of ridiculous little stocks that went crazy this week. There were uh, somebody making protective goggles. I guess it's not nuts that these things should go nuts, but hazmat suit maker uh, was up 80%, someone else. And then there was this, there's this... Uh, uh, bi uh, biotech called Veer, Pharm Veer Pharmaceuticals or Biologicals. It's uh, backed by 
Gates and SoftBank that this morning, you would think if you've got the big backers like that, you aren't just some ludicrous shooting bottle rocket type thing. <laughs> it doubled over about three minutes, uh, about uh, 8.30 this morning. Unbelievable. That, yeah, there's volatility of every variety yeah. in the market right now. You know, I would call that an orgy of bullishness. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, yeah, and I recommend listeners can now go wash their ears out with uh, soap and water mm-hmm. after that. Uh, Kathy, you don't look to me like you specialize in crazy market (laughs) observations. You look more of the sane and uh, well-reasoned. Well, uh, actually, one thing thing my team does, uh, first of all, I started my career as a commodity trader. So so, (laughs) I've seen a whole lot of crazy, uh, and I can't really talk about most of it. But um, (laughs) Can you do the hand signals? Oh, yeah. Were you uh, like CME or something? Uh, Chicago Board of Trade. Oh, my God. Back in the day. I was told that if I ever needed a surface-to-air missile, I should go to the floor of that exchange. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of things you could find yeah, there. I can imagine. Uh, <laughs> Off-exchange uh, trading was, uh, was very interesting. Uh, but one thing my team does, actually, is every year we have a bond issue of the year award for, like, the goofiest, craziest thing. Uh, now, it's too early in the year yet to know, and there's not much issuance going on. Uh, but we, we've had some good ones over the years. So we do like crazy market stuff. But I would say the craziest comment I got this week was from uh, somebody as I was talking about, well, this is why you have treasuries in your asset allocation, because when times like this, um, it's the best hedge you get against a stock market decline. And um, he got sort of vehement and he said, treasuries are so dangerous. If interest rates go up, you know, you're going to get killed. And I like there's a mentality out there that's worried about a U.S. Treasury, but not about the stock market. You know, <laughs> and I, I, I just like, OK, the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to hold it to maturity and get a low yield. Right, right. That and get your money back. Like, why is this in a day like this? Why is this so dangerous? <laughs> I don't, and you have to get so afraid. It's like, who cares if the S and P drops twenty percent? I don't want to hold a, a treasury bond. Yeah, <laughs> I still have upside. I guess I don't know. It's the weirdest. It's 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 a it's sort of a visceral reaction. You say treasuries with any maturity, and people get freaked out. Mm. Just because of the how low the yields are, they yeah. can go one way. Wow. Right. Well, hey, after 36 years of them falling. I mean, yes. <laughs> if, you, if you've been watching the S&P go up 20, I feel like because I recently had to allocate my IRA and I, I have to say that I kind of, I said that to the Fidelity guy. <laughs> yeah. right. But you know why I said it's because, you know, I, I sat there for tw- for the last 10 years watching 20% in the S&P every every year and I'm like where the hell am I going to get that in a treasury and you know what I should have done it turns out is put every cent of it into a treasury <laughs> year to date long term treasuries are up 8% wow. hindsight is everything Damn. isn't it yeah. <laughs> alright well you tease us we're going to have to get you back for the craziest bond offering of, of the year but that when's that awarded in the uh... Uh, we usually do it in November in November uh, okay Mark your so calendar. So we have a while. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah will go. mark her calendar. I will. My calendar's <laughs> on a napkin that I left somewhere in the subway. I'll mark my calendar. Yeah. I'm going go months out. Right. <laughs> All right, Sarah. A lot of pressure on you to deliver this week. All right, well. the craziest thing you saw? I uh, am just going to give my colleague Luke Cowa a shout out uh, because he did have the Business Week cover this week. And it's a great story. And it is also just crazy. So the headline of it is Reddit's profane greedy traders are shaking up the stock market. And essentially what this is a story about is about those on Reddit. It's Wall Street bets who essentially go on and they all 
it seems like they all come together behind a single name. They all think that they can buy calls. It'll make the dealers then buy underlying shares, and it pushes prices way up and up. And of names like Virgin Galactic, Tesla, Plug Power, Lumber Liquidators, all these stocks that have been going absolutely crazy have all been discussed on Wall Street Bets. And it really is just, it's unbelievable. It's, it's pretty, it's a crazy story. I will say, you know, that almost was not the cover story. And mm-hmm. Joel, the editor, came to me, as he does in a panic often, because yeah. yeah. he was afraid he might have to, to hold that story right. for a week and, and ask me to write a cover. You wrote a, a nice story, Mike. Story. That, was a, that was a fine story. Metaphors. Yeah, right. right. Chris was, <laughs> right? Chris made so much fun of that story. That I did was, not. He did. Oh, okay. And he did. The dead cat bed. You don't. I oh, think right. That was unnecessary. Chris is, Chris is a cat lover. <laughs> yeah, I, I think people understand. Uh, well, you need to. You need to understand. You need to explain it now. I had to. Well, I was about uh, Robert Schiller's new book, Narrative Economics, and the narrative in the markets. And uh, uh, you know, I use some of the metaphors like wall of worry. Mm-hmm. And the dead cat bounce. Yeah. And, and Chris thought I, I explained. I, I don't have any problem with people saying, I do have a problem with people saying dead cat bounce, but I, I didn't feel like we needed like a, a, a three paragraph exegesis <laughs> of the <laughs> physics of a, a cat being cat's dropped off the building. Yeah. Yeah. It was a tree, wasn't it? Right. It's true. <laughs> and then you come on and, and lay what, or, orgy. Uh, oh, God. God. With the, the numbers, the, the subscriptions are just going to. Go away to this podcast. <laughs> okay, so before Except it gets for any Ellie, worse, Eli Panama, yeah, no, no, he's going to redouble it. Who, who, will, who will rewind and, and listen to you talk about that? All right. Well, I, I think we need to end it here, uh, Mike <laughs> yeah, and <absolutely>. Chris. Yeah. <laughs> um, but with that said, Kathy Jones, Chris Nagy, thank you both so much for joining the show today. Thanks. Thank you. What goes up? We'll be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. Kathy Jones is at Kathy Jones. And Chris Nagy is at Chris Nagy One. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.